0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 72, and we're going to join Zwide of the Ndwandwe, who is often demonized in oral history, particularly by the Zulu. By the 1810s, Zwide had built up a powerful centralized kingdom and reinforced this power using his extensive family. He also formed feared Amabuto, such as the Amapela, Abathakabazi, the Isikwicha, and the Amankaiya. Most of these were around before Shaka became king of the Zulus, and the Ndwanwe were so large that they split into semi-autonomous sections, such as the Inkumalu, the Makale, and the Piseni. At first, Zwide concentrated his raids to the north around modern-day Iswatini. The Ndwanwe attacked Sabuza of the Lamini swazi north of the Pongola River many times, but the 1815 attack was characterized by extreme violence. Sobuza was forced to flee along with his Umuzi and his people were almost destroyed. The description of the ill will makes little sense because Zwede had married off one of his daughters to Sobuza. The Tlamini were already facing raids from the east, from closer to Delagoa Bay. The Ndwandwe were regarded as bandits and destabilized this part of southern Africa. Then they turned their attention further south. Zwide attacked the Komalo people living between the Mkuzi and White Mfilozi rivers, and eventually Donda of the Kumalo was killed by Zwide. The year 1815 has been seen as highly significant because it was then that Matawani of the Nguani was driven out of what he thought was a well-defended area between the Bavani River and the Upper Mfulosi. Matawani relaxed after some years of building his power base, which included an alliance with the Hlubi and then the Mtetwa out of the blues, really dispatched his men and they fell upon the Amangwani, driving them out of their homes. This moment is regarded as the first of many destabilizing events between the Tugela and the Pongola that led to a movement of people across the whole region, the subcontinent, the migration epic story called the impatgani Matawanis and Gwani moved away from their homes en masse, with some saying it was the renewed slave trading around Delagoa Bay that caused this, but more likely it was a growing conflict and population pressure related to resources like water, land, cattle, and women. Praise poets sing of Matawani that if he were not found by the Ndwandwe, he would be found by the Nkobalu, which goes to show that if you live in contested land, you'll always be fighting. Ask Ukrainians and Poles about that. All the people of KwaZulu-Natal today, where political violence is clearly being driven by pre-colonial antagonism. Matawani led large numbers of Nguani away from their home after Zuide's defeat in 1815, and they maintained military cohesion as they went. On the way west, they fought off Zuide and eventually arrived at the home of the Lhubi, which is close to modern-day Newcastle in kwazulu natal province. There was always tension between the Lhubi and the Nguani, but the final attack by Matawani shattered the Lhubi, with one Zulu historian saying it was like, ''Breaking a bottle into a thousand fragments!'' It was a izwekufa, a destruction. The area became a death zone as Hlubi people scattered in all directions. Some went north to rejoin older family members. Some headed across the Drakensberg into the Kaladin Valley, led by Mpangazita, Kambungani. Other Hlubi drifted further afield into Matatiel and in the Eastern Cape, and some remained where they were but consered Matawani. It was the units led by the sons of the dead chief Mtumkulu, such as the Mdibeli, Mananga and Ntambana, who interest us. They ended up heading south and asking Shaka for protection and it was these people who'd morphed into some of Shaka's most violent shock troops, the Izindani Ubuto. When Shaka first took power, he didn't immediately go on the offensive, killing off people left and right, but his Zululand was actually a haven of some sort. Zwide was far busier in these early days, driving people off their land, including another Mpangazita, but his clan name was Ka and Kumbata, not to be confused with the Shubi leader Mpangazita we just heard about. Ka and Kumbata was welcomed by Shaka and became a well known Zulu in Duna, commanding the Fasimba regiment. So by eighteen sixteen it's thought that Shaka of the Zulu and Dingzwaya of the Mtetwa were stabilizing their borders as Zwide ransacked the countryside. But both Shaka and Dingzwaya started to look south along the area between the Platuzi and Tugela rivers. Starting from the uplands, the source of these rivers, and heading eastwards towards the Indian Ocean, were a chain of the southern branch of the Kamalo called the Satoli, the Tembo, the Kunu, and the Mkise. And thus, once more, these surnames, which are so well known in South Africa, all hail from these clans. Further east towards the ocean were the Ngobo, and finally at the coastal end of the chain, the formidable Kwabe. However, closest were the Langeni, and there are many myths about these people. There is a legend that Shaka wanted to kill the entire Langeni because they would bullied him, and this grew into a grand myth that he wanted to line up and slaughter everyone and then dump their bodies in the Tatiana Gorge, which sounds faintly Russian. The problem is there is no such place in Zululand, this so-called Tatiana Gorge. The truth is, Shaka never tried to kill off the entire Langeni people. He incorporated them into the Zulu. His mother Nandi was of the Langeni after all. Still... The Langeni and the Zulu did have their major differences. Makedama of the Langeni was attacked by Shaka and sent some of his people to hide in the Ngantla forests, just a short hop from where I grew up. Makedama himself headed off down the Mlatusi River, that which flows into modern-day Richard's Bay, and dug himself into stone enclosures. The Zulu impi defeated the Langeni hiding in the forest, but after three attempts gave up trying to crush Makedama in his stone fortress. There is a great story told by the Langeni. We say that Makidama sent a message to Shaka saying that he and his people should be left alone. So the story goes like this. Shaka one day felt sorry for attacking so many of his neighbors and gathered up the orphans of the clans he'd killed and sent them to the Mtetwa district. He'd grown up there himself after all and said the country was beautiful, the milk was thick and creamy and the children would like it. So they were sent. How many? We don't know. One day a lion could be heard roaring near the orphan's cattle and they all ran to a nearby kraal to take shelter. Hearing a lion roar during the day was unusual, so the men arrived and started to sing ceremonial songs in honour of this courageous animal. It was now their chief, they said. The lion walked around the kraal, roaring all the while. The cattle went out of the kraal and began walking off, followed by the women who packed all their belongings and then the orphans. The men came after, and lost the lion, which trailed behind everyone. After the whole day walking at sunset, the lion moved ahead of the cattle and turned them back. Once the herd grouped, the lion pounced and killed one of the cows, but didn't eat it, leaving the dead animal for the people. This went on for the next few days, until the Langeni reached their old land near the Mflatuzi River. Sharka was duly informed that they had arrived, and selected cattle to be slaughtered in honour of the lion, but it suddenly killed a cow and ate it instead. Shaka is then supposed to have exclaimed, Whoa, they have been fetched by their chief. I thought I was sending them to a good place, but he does not want them to leave their old lands. And so the Langeni were allowed to remain on the old lands, which is where they live to this day, along the Mplatusi River. Of course, this story is an allegory, another biblically symbolic tale. All that is missing is the honey, but it serves its purpose in oral history. The basic facts are true. The Langeni were allowed back by Shaka and do indeed live along the Mtsatuzi. The Langeni warriors, such as Impokani Ka'ambanda Kazana of the Magwaza section, ended up fighting for Dingaan later, while Inkrazonki and Mbekwana Kambengi, who were Nandi's brothers, Shaka's uncles, in other words, helped bring him up. When Nandi died and was buried at Kwa Buluwa, the Langeni mourned, so they could hardly have been exterminated. A Langeni girl called Mbengi was in Shaka's Izagodlo. The extermination story of the Langeni is pure fantasy popularized by writers like Ryder Haggard, Morris and E.A. Ritter. Another southern conglomerate of little groups was called the Ngobu, and they were to cause Shaka some strife. The like, Kadi, in Yuswa, Ngongoma and a couple of others were part of this conglomerate and they were all attacked by Shaka. The Mtetwa also had a long history of trouble with the Ngobo, particularly the Nuswa clan. Shaka had Mgabi of the Nuswa killed during a succession dispute and afterwards they were kept in check by the establishment of a Zulu Mtetwa Umuzi in the form of a military outpost which was set up amongst them called the Intontela. This morphed into a full-blooded Ibuto regiment and all Nuswa became Tontela. The period of instability was upon the region. The Kaadi and other branch conquered Shaka, but the Satoli who lived nearby did not. It was early days. Shaka would eventually rule, but earlier on he was forced to accept the nominal independence of the Tembu, the Tlunu, the Mkise, and the Kwabe. Zwides and Dwanwe was causing much chaos around Pongola in the north. The Tlunu moved southwards away from the Nguani, and then they began their assault on the Tlubi heading across the Tugela River to the headwaters of the Mvoti River, near Greytown, Matringwane's trunu had fought Senzanga Kona, and he obviously regarded Shaka as a young upstart. So did the Mpongosi, the Ndlovu and the Bayeni clans, at least initially. Matringwane is famous for killing his own sons, although one by the name of Mfuzi escaped and asked Shaka for help. Shaka agreed. When Matringwani sent an ox to the Zulu chief and demanded his son be killed or returned, Shaka refused, but kept the ox. The Tunu had an interesting relationship, by the way, with people living further northeast near St. Lucia Lake. A traditional leader called Nisi lived there amongst the Gaza people, who supposedly had special powers. Matkengwani, too, had an interesting life. One of his Amabuta was called the Abatois, and the Vatwas was the generic name given by the Portuguese at Diligua Bay to inland marauders who'd pitch up regularly. So word got around in 1816 and here was the link once more between what was going on in Zululand and Delagoa Bay. We are not entirely certain if Matlingwani raided as far as the bay, but his empires got pretty close because the Portuguese felt the effect of the Abatwa. Shortly after Shaka's accession, within a year or so, Zwide attacked Dingzwayo, then the land was riven by a new form of violence. At first, Shaka was defeated twice, for example, by the Ndwandwe's Amapela, and Amagugu regiments, both battles taking place at Kwakokli Hill on the White That is only six kilometers southwest of Ulundi in Zululand. School and even university textbooks claim Shaka defeated the Ndwandwe at Kwakokri Hill. There is no such place. The real place is called Kwakokli, not Kwakori. And Shaka was not victorious. He was defeated. It's a case of one academic slavishly following another like the story of the Langani being thrown into a gorge with a Russian-sounding name. Then Dwanwe increased their raids, burning down the Zulu Mbelebeleni Imizi, as well as Shaka's own ilau, his personal enclosure, which was at Intontela. Shaka had to retreat across the Tugela River, things were so bad. Before he left, the oral storytellers say that he deployed a scorched-earth policy. The Zulu destroyed their own fields, driving off their cattle. And they hid their grain in pits covered with hides and earth. The Ndwanwe were travelling light and like Napoleon's army, living on what they looted, so the scorched earth decision slowed them down. Shark had deliberately avoided fighting the Ndwanwe raiding party. At least, those were his orders. Unfortunately, one of his Ubuto, led by Luki Limba, seems to have ignored this order and made the major tactical blunder of attacking Zwide's much more powerful raiding party. The Ibuta was mauled and Shaka banished Lukilimba to the wilderness for his mistake. Lukilimba ended up in exile on the lower Imzumkulu River living with the Mdadaza clan. But Shaka had to flee south and arrived at the Marti Tugela. It was running swiftly and he had to swim across to the south side at Itlokweni. His troops and the cattle crossed with him and the refugees eventually arrived at Magai, which is close to where Greytown is today. Logweni can't be found on a map, but if you draw a line from where he started in the Nkantle area west of Ishoi, then onwards to Magaya, he would have swum over the river in the Kranskorp area above Stango, or Kwadukuza as it's called. Shaka immediately went to work locally, warning the Magaya and the Kale people not to touch his cattle. Then he killed Mapumulo chief in Tumkulu, Ka Dibantlela. For all of his brashness, Shaka at this point was not a successful ruler. He was on the run from the Ndwandwe and trapped between Zwide and the other large groups around the Tugela. He'd been thrown off his lands and it was about now that he received reports that some Zulu people were talking about leaving him for either Dingiswayo or Zwide. Shaka needed to somehow increase his presence in the Enkantla forests towards the sea, near where Ishoe and that little village of Ngandla is today. It was too close to Kwaabe territory to ignore So he asked the people downstream for help. Now that Kwabe link becomes so important. We must understand that the Amazulu were just another medium-sized group. The Kwabe were far larger. Sharko was also going to have to deal with its famous chief, Pakatwai. Once again, the stories abound, and the richness of the descriptions need to be relayed. The Kwabe had pushed the Tele and the Tuli down the coast, and they had a dozen or more Amabuto at the ready. Some of these had been combined into a single large army, so to speak, called the Izinkondi, with prose poets exaggerating their size by saying that if it began to enter the Umuzi in the morning, it would take until sunset to pass through. Pakatwayo made the fatal mistake of underestimating Shaka, but given his multiple regiments, he could be forgiven for doing so. Pakatwayo's Umuzi included the Isikana, the Isilinda, the Ubedi, the Imtandeni, Itoyayani, the Idideni, the Edlekezeni, the Maganukiani, and the Udwini. Pakatwaya also made the mistake of failing to shore up internal rifts. There were others in the Kwabe who wanted him gone. They, like most of the larger entities in Zululand, were really a conglomeration of foreigners, a welding of lineages which centralized power, sometimes through false lineages. This meant there was quite a bit of whispering going on behind Pakatwayo's back about who really should be ruling that Kwabe. The Makanya-Kwabe south of the Chigela were a junior lineage who believed they were the senior. The Makanya jumped over royalty, was the allegation. Before Shaka arrived, Makanya had fought with Pakatwayo, who then crossed the Chigela to teach him a lesson. Makanya fought him off. Then Pakatwayo attacked his own brother, normal, and lost again. The irony was their father Kondro was still alive and had nominated Nomo as his heir. But Norma's mother was an Imtetwa, a sister of Dingiswayo, and the Kwabe thought Nomo should not be chief. He wasn't proper Kwabe blood. Nomo was duly chased off. The Imtetwa tried to help but failed. Then he pitched up at Shaka's home asking for refuge. Meanwhile, Paketwayo's other brothers were muttering in their imizi about all the goings-on this epic story was heading to its climax. So, in around 1817, Shaka was in Pakatwai's backyard, having fled the Ndwandwe, and he asked the Kwabe leader for grain. Others say the argument that was going to take place revolved around beads, those all-important items of trade we've heard about. There are many, many stories about what happened next. I'm going to relate them because each is descriptive, suggestive, colourful and symbolic. But right now, we must halt for the night and light a fire to chase away the hyena and the lion and the leopard. Next, we'll hear about Pacatwyo's fate, and then return to the Cape. It's the second decade of the 19th century, and all sorts of madness is about to strike the Albany area around Grahamstown. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at Des Latham. Until next.